Wow. Which is not really, I mean, I was surprised to hear that. Why not though? Why not? Why are we so surprised after what, 10 years of people saying, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to bid, uh, I'm not going to pay uh, for the privilege of a major renovation. And now suddenly with such a tight real estate market, of course, of course people are going to pay. That's where you're going to, obviously that's where you get the value because you, you know, you're buying something at such a depressed price because they're not moving because things take forever. Absolutely forever. Even just the, the buildings, before you even get to Scott, like the buildings department process is so slow, right? Is that, you yeah. encountering that too? Well, well, you've got, it's not even necessarily the, the building process, but you've got to find an architect. They're busy. You've yeah. got to interview them. You've got to find out who you like. You've got to go through a design process. So let's say that goes all swimmingly. I mean, you're six months to a year. I mean, that right there. And then you have to get into the approvals process. And then that does back stuff up. And you got to go through your odds are you have something in landmarks because like almost every building is a landmark building. Yeah. So <laughs> you got to do something inside of there. And then you got to you know, get the permits. Meanwhile, you got to line up your builder. And these days, you know, people, again, they're busy. And as everyone's busy, what used to be a long process, you know, you tack on another three to three months to 24 months. And so, you know, you have to really be able to look ahead and say, you know, I, I, I want this enough that I'm willing to delay gratification for two to four years. Um, it's wild. And you're carrying something else while you're doing that. Yeah. So, to, to, I mean, out of curiosity, because here there's so much bureaucracy and there's so much density of people that, you know, there has to be so many different checkpoints. And in some ways it all has to be in place, but a lot of it probably doesn't. If you're in Connecticut, let's say two, two projects similar, $5 million places that need three or $4 million worth of renovation. What's the difference in timeline? It, 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 the money it, it, it depends. No matter what the project is, it's two weeks, two weeks. That's Scott, two weeks. Well, you have, I mean, it's even out in New York City, in spite of all the, um, the inefficiencies, there's parts of New York City that end up actually being much more efficient than working through a municipality. I mean, so like in, in Westchester County, you have some county governance things and you have um, city governance. And so like all of the septic systems have to go through Westchester County Health Department. And if they're busy or somebody's sick or on leave or whatever else, you might tack on two, three months for your septic approval. And then you go to Greenwich and it turns out that, you know, your, your guys filed for um, the, the mandatory uh, um, variance on anything over 150,000 cubic feet that has never, ever been denied. And they missed the, uh, they missed the de filing deadline by a day. Okay, so now it's two weeks later. And then they don't have enough alternates. And so they're putting that meeting off. And then, by the way, the library came back in and has a huge thing. And it's going to take the entire meeting. And so, you know, months just sort of slide by. And, and by the way, they, you know, and, and also a lot of municipalities have that, uh, that fun process where they'll go ahead and review the plans. And when they find anything wrong, they return the plans to you. And you go fix the one thing. And then they go and they look. And then they turn the page and go, oh, here's something else wrong. And they hand it back to you. And you're just going, it's like, please. I mean, and again, it's like a board application. That's like a co-op board application. One little thing wrong out of this entire section. Come pick it up, go yep. fix it, bring it back. We'll, we'll back use our line. full time to review. And then we'll go ahead and we'll tell you what's wrong. And then we'll go back and we'll do it again. And, and again, meanwhile, there's some municipalities that are great. I mean, you walk in, they work with you, they review the whole thing, they get it all done. So it really, it, it's a town by town basis as to whether or not it's good or bad and how bad the people are, are working. And if you get a different building inspector, you know, they can really change the system for good or, or bad. Whereas in New York, it's like you have the monolithic process and you're going to get through the process and there's expediters who understand and get the process and, you know, at least they work it. But it, it's, you know, in, in a way, the co-op divisions and stuff, those are even worse. The co-op groups, they may take a lot more time than the actual city. I, I, I want to come back to Roberto. Are you asking the question because um, New York is now out of balance? Because in Connecticut, 
yes, we don't have enough listings. So we're starting to see people are willing to buy a project. And historically, you bought a project because there was more value. It was a value proposition. I think I'll take on the project because maybe uh, I can buy it inexpensively. That's changed. Now people take on the project because there's so few choices. There's too few listings. For you to ask the question suggests that New York has also got too few listings and that it's now a seller's market. Are you asking it because it's now so far over in New York, it's, it's clearly a seller's market? But it's not, you know, the COVID discount has evaporated and gone and we were hot, but it's now settled a bit. It really has settled a bit. There's September, October has been a little bit of a, an opportunity for buyers to actually get some good deals and really negotiate a little bit. But if you look at the number of contracts that are coming in, the contracts are high, but they're not crazy, crazy high like spring. Um, but just the anecdote that I heard today that someone had two different bidding wars on a property that needed a gut renovation. And I have a client right now, we are, I've just got these answers back about something they want to gut renovate. They, they, we've looked at We've looked at 49 apartments since, since Labor Day, 49. We've made three offers. We had an accepted offer on something, but there's an open permit. We don't know when it's going to get resolved. And they've kept looking and now they've landed on this ugly stepchild apartment, this post-war. And I, I want, and they think that they can just make it amazing because the price is favorable. And, you know, but the numbers are, we're ha he, he made a bunch of phone calls, was having trouble finding someone to do the work. And the numbers are very, very high. It's a, it's a post-war building and the construction that everybody's been telling him and he doesn't want to do, it's a gut renovation and he's not moving walls, but he's, he's got to renovate the kitchen, the bathrooms, the floors. He's got to maybe do some electric, you know, he's got to do everything except move walls. And it's four or $500 a square foot. And this is just basic. This isn't super luxury, which in the past five years ago, if you were putting $500 a square foot into the townhouse or something, it was pretty high end. So this is just, this is the exception, not the rule that you're seeing somebody chase something that they shouldn't chase in the city because he doesn't have to chase just this one, he happens to be, but you're saying there's still choice in the city. I learned today at lunch from my, uh, my friend, uh, our friend, David Rucci, he said uh, that he was just involved in, in a bidding war. 28 people bid for the house on, on Butler Lane in New Canaan, 28 people. How, that's a, how, that's a market how is out of whack. Is it price sensitive though? Is it because it's really well priced? Uh, Butler Lane is number one, a, uh, the neighborhood called Behind the Y. So there's a, uh, it's a very flat area um, with all the houses are on, um, would you say one acre, Scott? So all the houses are on one acre, uh, skinny little streets winding around like spaghetti. Uh, where kids could uh, ride their bike on these flat roads. Nobody's driving very fast. And it's obviously close to the Y, close to Waveney Park and close to the schools. So when people come to New Canaan, their friends tell them, oh, you should look behind the Y. And they start their search there. And then they find that it's relatively expensive, that um, you're going to pay a little bit more for a house behind the Y. Um, some, but you know, it's like a brand name. It gives you confidence that you're buying in a certain neighborhood. Um, so 28 people will compete for a house on, on Butler Lane. But is it really well, would you say it's well-priced? They, David said in this case, he says, I think they came on with a sharp price to begin with, which encouraged so many offers. So if the house should have been priced, I don't know what it was, but if it was a one six house and it came on at one five, yeah, you'd get, you'd get 28 hopeful people. I asked him how many people bid over asking and he said just about all of them. Wow. So 
here, here, because of board approval for the most part, and 60% of our housing stock is, is co-ops, a lot of the, when you have, say, so many multiple bids like that, you go through a process of like, who's, who's most qualified to pass the board with some sort of combination of what's the best, what's the best price, right? Um, how do you determine, you have 10, you have whatever, you have 28 offers, you have 10 over ask. How do you start sifting through, what's the decision-making process? Uh, probably the most important is that you don't want to go through this process and then have your uh, buyer um, uh, leave. So the seller says, well, the, the difference between a million six and a million six ten is de minimis. What's most important is do I have a reliable buyer? Or is either of those buyers who are $10,000 apart or $20,000 apart, which one is the reliable? Who will stick with it? So you, you want a proof of funds letter. Um, and so you want to know that they have the wherewithal. Uh, then you want to know what is your timetable. I'm willing to close anytime. I'm willing to close in two weeks. So somebody, if you have 28 bids, the person who says, I will, I will take this uh, with no inspection contingencies. I'd like to do an inspection, but I won't make it a contingency of my offer. So my million six ten offer is not going to be renegotiated based on the inspection, unless there is a massive surprise. That's the language uh, realtors like like me use. Uh, we will do this inspection for uh, information purposes only. We will not retrade, and the only reason we would leave is if it was a massive surprise that could not be cured. Uh, the second thing is we can close anytime. So we have flexibility of closing and we have the wherewithal that we do not need a mortgage contingency. Sometimes people will say, well, I am going to get a mortgage, um, but I'd, so I'd like to have an, a, an appraisal contingency, which is a little bit less uh, of a contingency than a mortgage contingency. So we really hang our offers on, two thing, uh, on three things, flexibility of closing, what contingencies are there? And um, that's pretty much it. So out of 28, now you were down to three or four that literally check every one of those boxes. They're all saying the same thing. Right. What's the next stage? Well, a lot of these people will go to a second stage and they'll say, they'll, they'll uh, invite the finalists, the top two or three and say, you know, you have the best bid and I want to know that you're going to put down 10%. Uh, you know, uh, non-refundable. You're going to put 10% down today in escrow. You're going to complete your inspections by Friday. And, um, and, if you, uh, and if you do this in the next 24 hours, we'll hold all others as backup. And then you go to the other, say the second and third place uh, bidder, and you say, you are the backup. And if they don't, and we will hold their feet to the fire. And if they do not perform in the next 24 hours with a deposit, and then the next three days with an inspection um, scheduled, and then the next seven with inspection results, we will come to you immediately without any reservations. And they'll say, great, can I improve my offer? And um, you, you say, yeah, I, uh, you can improve your offer, but I have to give them a chance to perform. Yeah. I mean, I'd say one of the things, you know, Roberto, about what you said about, you know, somebody going to look at 49 places and then decided to buy something they needed to renovate. Yes, that, that's actually one of the things I use sort of as a qualifier that, you know, when I'm taking a look at, a, at a, an existing house with somebody and you hear that it's like their 40th or 50th house they've gone to look at, the reality is it's like you need to build your own house. Yeah. Because if, if out of 50, you don't find what you're going to like, yeah, I, I don't think the 51st is going to be good. I mean, you're really looking a needle in a haystack. So really what you're talking about is someone that needs to do their own thing. It's a really good point. Yeah. You've often said, Scott, that if you should, that, that you've told me uh, when I say, how much would it cost to build this? How much would it cost you know, to, build it, to build new with you? You've often said, if you can buy a used house and be happy, do it. The, the economics of building a new house custom are, you know, a, 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 are, are, uh, 
you can't think about resale value if you're going to go down that path. Because if you are a value shopper, don't go down the path of custom construction. Correct. I mean, there's, there's times there's times when that's different. For example, if you custom built something in, in 17, 18, 19, you won because you actually you ended up getting huge appreciation in the product and you had something ready to go that was already there and you beat a bunch of inflation. But that's a chance operation. I mean, most of the time you won't be able to do that. Um, so it, it, it's but at the same time, also, it's like, Look, your home is not, you shouldn't think of it as an investment. I mean, you're showing up there, you know, you and by the way, your spouse are going to, you know, drive up and down that driveway, you know, a thousand times a year, or you're going to go into that building, you're going to turn the key, you're going to go into the, into the structure. And, you know, what's the ROI on being happy when you go in or having your house, your spouse be happy. And it's worth a lot. Um, you know, you consider like, like what, what's the ROI on a vacation? you don't really have one. That's not an investment, yet people will spend a lot of money in order to get that feeling. So is it worthwhile having a living environment that you really like? I have that conversation with so many like hedge fund people that are tweaking little this differential and that differential. And I just have to, you got to put all that away. Does this, is this where you want to live? You're going to be here for 13 years with your kids, at least until, you know, Maggie's in college, like all this right now means nothing then. And imagine what you, your life will be in this space. You need to think about that a little bit more and get a little bit away from the numbers. You, this differential, you make up in an hour on the trading floor today. Like you can't think about that. And, and again, it's not like, you know, don't look, you know, you don't want to go ahead and, and buy a $3 million townhouse. Well, I don't even buy a $3 million townhouse, but you don't, you don't want to buy a a $5 million townhouse and put 10 million into it in a neighborhood that supports six or seven, unless you really love it or are going to be there for a long time, in which case it doesn't matter. But, you know, if you're sitting there, if ultimately you're, you're putting nine or 10 million in an $8 million neighborhood, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. That's, uh, you know, being happy, I think is worth more than that. If you're playing at that level. And again, just knock off a zero and, and you're down to a more mortal level, but. You know, it's the same question. Exactly. I agree with that. We're at a zero and you're at a much higher level. <laughs> and we're in that world. Yeah. So, John, are you doing renovation to your house now? I am. And uh, it needs everything. And I went with eyes wide open. I know that I need to spend. Uh, all right. So, yeah, let's let's talk specifics. I think that I could get away with $30,000 to rehabilitate my HVAC, but I probably ought to spend 50 um, on a, a higher efficiency HVAC. I've got three air handlers. That does not include the furnace. That just talk, We're just talking about the air conditioning systems, two in the attic, one in the basement. So I've got about $50,000 budgeted for, or, or in my mind for, for AC. I have about 50 windows. I think they're going to cost me uh, $1,200 a piece. So I think I have an $80,000 on a good day, $80,000 window package. And we're, we're struggling now with, uh, apparently the Anderson 400 is a, is a really good $800 window. And does it worth it to go to the Marvin, uh, or to the LePage or to the, you know, any of the other brands, and so I'm getting a window education, but I think my baseline is $80,000 for windows. $80,000 for the window or for the window installed? Window installed. I think it's $800 for the window in this case. And I'm assuming another $500 uh, to install each window. Um, roof. Roof is typically, a, I'm going to say a $50,000 thing when it's asphalt. But Scott, tell me if I want to go wood, if I want to go cedar, I'm probably looking at 80 or 100. Uh, you're probably for cedar. Well, I mean, some of this gets into flashing from gutters and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, for the roof material itself and the labor involved, I mean, you're probably a, a three to four X for wood. Now, again, the flashings are going to be the same. Yeah, I thought it was two X. You're telling me I've been out of touch a while? 
Well, and, and by the way, it, it's one of those questions as to, you know, what's it really worth? Um, there, there's, there's not one type of shingle. There's 50 types. And depending which type of the highest grade asphalt versus like the highest grade wood shingle, I mean, you're still probably talking about a three or four X just for the material. A lot of the labor is the same. A lot of the flashings and gutters are the same. So it's not a, it's not a simple equation. And again, are you going aluminum gutters? Are you going copper gutters? Or are you doing lead coated or, or plain? And um, how much flashing and gutters are there versus wood material? Okay, so you're including the gutters in that calculus. So yes, I absolutely think that you could go from a baseline $40,000, $50,000 asphalt roof on a 5,000, covering a 5,000 foot house, um, which is probably about 2,000 feet per level, right? That's, a, that's your basic large, you know, that's your basic five bedroom house. It's probably 2,000 first floor, 2,000 second floor, and maybe 1,000 foot of basement, maybe 1,000 foot of attic. Um, 5,000 feet, 50 grand asphalt. You're saying we could look, we could, we, we could probably do a hundred to 150 for cedar and copper, 150. Yes. Yeah. And then to go slate 250, right? Yeah. But, and again, part of this is, I mean, like one of the differences with like spec houses versus custom is that like on a spec house, you will get like the thinnest, in most spec houses, you get the thinnest slate that you can possibly have, which is actually probably less expensive than a really good wood shingle. And there, there's some stuff there again, that a spec house um, wood roof is probably using the least expensive um, wood shingle, which is not all that much more than, than a high-end asphalt. But again, and by the way, the high-end asphalt is a much better value because it'll last a lot longer than that than the bad wood roof. And the same thing for the slate, where you know slate it, it does wear, and if you're using the real thin slate that barely works together and it's going to crack and move, you know you're not it, it it's not going to last forever. So those are some of the little tricks of the trade, and it doesn't look as good. So. So uh, if I'm looking at a $100,000 roof and an $80,000 windows and $50,000 for HVAC, um, and as Scott pointed out, two, three years of my life, you know, to get, to get this antique in shape, yeah, you really have to, yeah. <laughs> I, that's just the beginning. I've definitely carved out the first $500,000 worth of priorities with the first four or five large projects. And we haven't even touched the inside yet. I think I also figured last time I bought a kitchen, I bought a $25,000 appliance package and a $40,000 um, cabinet package. And it was uh, $15,000 worth of countertop stone. And I think all those numbers have gone up by what, 50% by then? So I could be... So I, I, it would be easy to say 60 grand for my cabinets and you could spend 200 on cabinets. But I mean, I was just, a, I'm a basic guy with basic Chevy tastes, 60 on cabinets and 40 on appliances and another uh, 30 on stone. Yeah, I could be up to 130 quickly on a, on a re, redo kitchen. And, and, and I will say one of the other reasons that people like renovated or new, you know, the reality is that when you buy a house, and there's the, you know, everything looks wonderful and great. You don't know whether or not it's going to start breaking. The day after you buy it, a year, two, four, when are you going to get those expenses for the new refrigerator, which you got to you know, get really quickly because the old one just broke. Whereas at least if you have new stuff, you're like, you know, I basically got, min after the first year, I basically got minimal headaches for the next six, seven, eight years. Um, which, you know, again, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for that, where you just don't have to worry about it during that time. Now, switching gears, since we're talking systems, I built a new house six years ago, and I chose to go geothermal because I had a very tight envelope uh, of blown in insulation. And I thought that I could build four wells of about eight to $10,000 each and, uh, and another $25,000 worth of equipment. So for more or less 50 to $60,000, I could put a geothermal system into my house. And Scott renovated his 
house. And he also chose to put in geothermal heating and cooling. And when I asked him why, you said, well, that the inflection point on, on the payback was a, was it a four year? Four year, after four years of savings, the difference would be paid back. How do you feel about geothermal now, especially with oil prices rising and natural gas prices rising? Well, I mean, we're still huge fans. And, and the reality is that, of course, electrical prices are going to rise, too, because they don't, you know, they're not all renewable right now. And they can never really be all renewable because people want electricity at night. So until the storage issues get solved. But geothermal is still a very good deal in that it's, it's more efficient than a regular system. Um, there are some conventional systems that have actually gotten very, very efficient, too. But one of the biggest benefits of the uh, geothermal is that you don't have exterior cooling equipment. So the compressors on the outside, you don't have those making noise. So being able to put them inside makes them act more efficiently because you, you have a consistent temperature that they're operating in. Um, and in addition, they aren't exposed to the elements. So like especially down in the water, if you're down near the um, ocean and you have exterior compressors, they're always exposed to salt always. And so it just eats at them and eats at them and eats at them. Whereas if they're inside, they don't go through that same um, stress and therefore they tend to last a lot longer and have less maintenance. Um, but it, every time you ask an HVAC guy, you know, what's the payback? It's, it depends. I mean, how much do you use heating? How much do you use cooling? Is it a bad winter or a good winter? Is electricity more at this point or is the spot price on gas more? And so there's a lot of variables to it. Um, we really like it. We still do probably over probably two thirds of our houses use um, some form of geothermal. When did you put yours in? At the same time, right? 2016? Uh, 12. No, we were about 2012 wow. or 13. Has, like. it has it played out as you thought it would for, your, for you? Well, you, you, have, you, you automatically have a huge, um, a huge boost when you're doing a renovation because my old equipment stunk. So as soon as you put in the new equipment, this is so much better than the old equipment. It's not even funny. Now, no matter what I did, it would have been a lot better than what I had. But I mean, I probably end up spending, um, you know, I, I probably do maybe a thousand to twelve hundred bucks a year for a, a fifty-five hundred square foot house in oil, and that includes hot water. So I mean, it, it's you, you really it uses almost no heating, uh, almost none of the heating is goes through um, oil, meaning the backup system for a geothermal because sometimes in extreme weather you can end up needing to get a boost for the um, geothermal. Um, but the reality is with a modern, a modern home with insulation, with modern insulations, the houses are so tight, you don't even need to use the heat, uh, any oil for the heat. Um, it really just goes for the electricity the whole time. Wow. That's you should know that for a house, Scott's size or my size, for a 5,000 square foot house, a lot of my customers tell me, and I'm finding, that it's, it's easy to spend, and we're talking about for a 5,000 square foot or less house, it's easy to spend a thousand bucks in the winter in oil per month. And it's easy to spend a thousand bucks on electricity per month for electricity for your HVAC, for your, for your air conditioning. So you should assume a thousand dollars a month. That's what I experienced with my 1937 house. Then I built this house with geothermal and my electric bill, which includes heat and elect, you know, lights and uh, the hot water heater and heating, uh, uh, cooling, everything is more like $200 a month. So I went from $1,000 of just heat and cool to $200, maybe $300 for total utilities expense. How about you, Scott? About the same? $300 a month? Yeah, I mean, it used to, it, again, it used to be 600 to 1,000 a month in oil, and, and now you're 600 to 1,000 bucks a year. You know, and then that's, again, with using the, the, uh, the, uh, the geothermal system, sorry, just with hot water being on oil. And for the cooling, again, I had this old heat pump that was doing like above my garage. And that sucker was loud, and it was just, I mean, I think it alone was taking up like 600 bucks a month or something. And now like the whole bill is less than 600 bucks I mean, with LED light fixtures and a bunch of other stuff. So much, much more efficient and much easier on the monthly pocketbook. So what can people do? Like, 
not a, not a townhouse, but what can people do in a building in a city where you know you're getting the heat from the building, et cetera? I mean, I mean, I would think that the the windows are the premier top thing you could spend your money on as far as energy efficiency. But what other things can you do? Um, yeah, just getting the new equipment. Right, checks. <laughs> The, the new equipment, the newer the equipment, everything now has to be so much more efficient. It doesn't have to be, but there's so much more efficient equipment available. It makes a huge difference. And if you're, if you're actually redoing your apartment and there's the benefit to it, I mean, again, the insulation and the building envelopes are just so much more efficient than they used to be. So you'll get that. And windows are a big deal. You know, older windows, you know, leak like a sieve. Newer windows actually are, are just very, very tight. Um, so in the city, it's, it, again, it's just, you upgrade whatever you have and there's sort of a, a payback that anything that's more than like five or six years old, you'll probably get an okay payback on that. Really? Cause it's, again, that's how much things have actually improved. Even, I don't know how much even like sub zeros and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, like if you if in, I forget when they made the giant move, but the old sub zeros, like we'll say like back in the nineties. We're freaking energy hogs. I mean, you're talking about like 100, 100 to 200 bucks a month for each refrigerator and electricity. And now you're like 20 bucks a month. I mean, if, if, if you even notice, I mean, it's just, it's so much more efficient. It's not even funny. Now the old sub zeros used to cost like 1200 bucks. Now they cost 10,000. So it's good that they're saving you that money, but, but it does cut down on electricity. And, and by the way, if you think though about how stuff, how communities grow, um, if, if places like, I mean, in Texas was one of the first places that really recognized the need for energy efficiency. They really had no energy efficiency and they were building like, you know, they were like China building a coal plant every month or something in order to keep up with it. As they started implementing a lot of the efficiencies, they ended up actually being able to mothball, you know, grow like crazy and mothball, you know, plants because you're able just to be so much more efficient. Now, again, eventually you reach this point where the efficiency you know, it, you aren't getting those gains. Once you're at like 98% efficiency, what, you're going to get to 100 and it's going to double the initial cost and you save 1%. You know, in the early days, things were bad. I mean, energy, you know, everyone treated energy like it was free. And, and of course, it turned out not to be that way. So it changed. Wow. That is a big difference. There's some monster changes and, and you actually you can tell inside of one of the, the bigger problems you have inside of modern homes is actually making sure you get enough air exchange and you have something in an ERV, an energy recovery um, ventilator that will actually trade out inside air for outside air and convert the heat and, and take the heat or cooling along the way. So basically you're running the, the new air through like essentially a radiator and the old air through a radiator and they exchange the heat or cooling on the way out to bring in fresh air, which makes your house a lot more healthy because in the old houses, all the fresh air came in through the walls and the electrical outlets and the, and the chimneys and stuff. But today the houses are so tight that I mean, literally like when the dryer's running, it's hard to open a door. I mean, cause it, it's, you get a negative pressure on the house. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's strange. And, and you've, we've had to really up our game under the ventilating systems and how much makeup air and, you know, if you take a big, uh, I mean, if you have like a, a, a thousand CFM uh, hood over your stove and you turn that on and then you try to light a fire. I mean, if, if you typically with lighting a fire, you want to go ahead and light a piece of paper and put it up in the flue ahead of time. And if you have your uh, like kitchen hood on, the flames are like pulling down on your hand. I mean, they're trying to get in the room. That's how much air is being sucked in. Wow. I experienced that. I had that. I was it. turn off that hood. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to light the fire and you'd have to get the fire going before she could turn the hood back on because, you know, just having a few, yeah, it would, it would suck it all back into the room until you got a good draft going. So where, Scott, where are you, where are you finding the biggest, are you having trouble getting appliances and things like that? Just today. Um, some sub-zeros that we'd ordered back in February that had been delayed and were supposed to show up in November. So November, meaning like starting sometime next week. And now we're going to get them in February. And, and we're, we're a big buyer for our supplier. Our supplier is a great company, you know, a great, a great group. We have a multi-generational relationship. This is just what it is. So a year from the order is when you're going to get it. 
Uh, hopefully. Hopefully. Is that, a, is that because of the, do you know what the cause of that is? Is that the bottlenecks in LA and the port bottlenecks? No, um, well, you end up having to, you know, everything that, everything that is um, not really stupid has chips in it. So there's shortages on the chips. In addition, there's also shortages on like spray foam insulation. I mean, since the, uh, you know, since the, the Houston freeze, the, the Texas freeze, they were running behind then, and now they're running even further behind. And, you know, so it trying to get like the upholstery, the cushion, the, the um, foam for upholstery inside of uh, couches and chairs, that's running way behind. You know, I'm sure that the insulation panels inside of the um, refrigerators, that's all running behind. And then I'm sure there's other specialty pieces that, you know, certain people can't get stuff. But I believe chips are what are doing is the biggest loss. All right. Here's the real question, because I just talked to somebody at Rotary today. You know him, too. Uh, and he said, oh, I, I sold my house. I'm sitting in a condo. I've bought myself a piece of waterfront property and I am going to spend, you know, a million or you know a couple million dollars and I'm going to. I'm building myself a new house. And he says, and boy, am I glad I waited because lumber prices and price, you know, commodity prices came down. And he said, but labor prices, he says, I don't, labor prices aren't coming down. Uh, and I thought to myself, okay, so there's a lot of people like him out there waiting for the new normal, right? We're waiting for the chip shortage to be over and the labor shortage to be over so that we can get going with our lives. Uh, how, how, much, how much longer does he have to wait? I, I, you know, as, as we tell people, it, it's, you know, our business follows your business. So <laughs> when there's been real estate, real estate transactions really help to drive construction. And what have real estate transactions been over the last year? Crazy. So what are the odds that that demand is going to go down suddenly within the next couple of years? And they'd say it's pretty small. And I mean, let's say that all of the chips showed up tomorrow for Sub-Zero. They've got like a year backlog to get the stuff delivered. And if they could find the truckers, I mean, and so there, there's, there's stuff that you were talking, I, I'm predicting it's going to be at least a couple of years before the bottlenecks start to really come out of it. And so, I mean, it's like, look, if you want to wait a few more years and believe that, that the costs of construction are going to come down while inflation hits the regular, the regular market anyway, you know, everything else, and that's not going to hit construction. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you should wait. I mean, I think that's a bet that actually I would not take. And even if you could, is it worth two years, three years in order to save 5%? But what, let's talk about the labor costs. So the labor, the, the government gave out a lot of money. People didn't want to work because they were just getting money. And I spoke to a couple of uh, builders, especially this one guy who's a friend of mine in the Hamptons. And he said, you can't find work. Same, same with the gardener and everything. He's like, can't, no one will work. No one will work. So the price, it's like supply and demand. There's very little supply of labor. So therefore, you got to pay people more money in order for them to work. But at some point, that's got to stop, Right. I don't think we're going to see humongous increases. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the thing like for lumber, I mean, you'll continually see spot prices and stuff going up and down. You know, copper right now, I never thought of this, but you guys might have seen inside the uh, journal had an article that in the futures market, you actually take physical delivery. So if I buy a futures, you know, contract for a, a ton of copper on November 1st, and I haven't been able to sell or close that out, on November 1st, somebody delivers a ton of copper to me. And you're like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with a ton of copper? But the reality is that's how the market does work. And, and there's actually warehouses that are meant to go ahead and cover this part so that traders can go ahead and just fluctuate. And you don't actually really necessarily have to take the copper or do the copper or move it all around and stuff can be there. The warehouses are empty. So, I mean, literally under the, under the futures markets, I mean, guys can't cover contracts. I mean, it's missing. And so copper prices have really spiked. And again, they, you've got to refill like all the copper warehouses before it even gets into piping and stuff. I mean, there's a whole series of things that have to happen. So, you know, one thing can come down, another thing can go up. And again, nothing goes to the sky. At a certain point, people say, look, okay, I don't need the extra stone wall. And so all of a sudden the Masons are like, nobody's building stone walls or only doing what they absolutely have to do or something. Um, 
but yeah, I don't think that it's going to go, you know, until we hit a major recession, the pricing should not materially fall. And especially for labor. They for, should, labor. Pardon? for labor. For labor. And for, and actually for a lot of the materials too. I mean, again, those will be some stuff will go up, others will go down. The materials I get, the labor I'm kind of surprised by because if you think about it, I, I worry, like, I don't know if there's enough painters, physical painters, to do all of the freshening up that's happened inside of the real estate market over the next couple of years. I mean, you need like an infinite number of painters to go ahead and just do the touch-ups and change the color in the bathroom and do a little wallpaper and, you know, take care of the exteriors that weren't quite dealt with and all of those things. So, I mean, it, it's there. And by the way, how many people do you know? That they sit there and go, yeah, my son, he's going to become a carpenter. It's great. And, and we need those. And by the way, a lot of the people who went off and did different studies at school and stuff, they'd be a lot happier and make a lot more money if they became a carpenter and a plumber and a, an HVAC guy, but they didn't. And so now they got $80,000 worth of debt and they're a barista. And the carpenter and the plumber make a lot more money than that. So the plumbers here make unbelievable it's i mean look in, in, even in the suburbs i mean if you're a, a five-year man journey journeyman uh, hvac repair guy you know 100 grand with good benefits and 40-hour work week and not a whole lot of stress kind of typical talking about paint is it difficult to get paint considering the volume all, all depends I mean, it's like it's and one of the things manufacturers have done and, and by the way this this bodes poorly for um for prices falling is they, they've stopped any specialty or custom stuff. So like when, you know, for uh, Sub-Zero, I mean, Sub-Zero has maybe like 30 models of refrigerators. They're currently making like three because they can make a lot more of them if they just focus on one thing. Yeah. We have, we have a New York City developer client who was a, um, uh, doing a big development in Brooklyn and he wanted uh, Starfire glass <clears throat> In his bath, in his um, master bathroom out here, so a low E, a specialty glass, and we're telling them it's like, look, they're just not making it right now. Like, I mean, you got to wait for them to stop a production run, do this stuff, have it come out, and it's just going to take a long time. But it's probably worth waiting for. And he's like, no, I can get it. I got a you know 200 units. I can make this all happen. It's like I'm telling you, you just you can't get it. And you know, two weeks later, he comes back and goes, yeah, why don't you guys go ahead and get that for me? <laughs> Because it, it just doesn't exist. Um, the guys can't get the specialty stuff. So one, once the, the normal models, all the demand is filled for that, then they'll actually start backfilling the specialty models. And then finally, it'll get back to the point that maybe they've overproduced and maybe there's um, a surplus and then the prices come down. And for paint, again, some of the paints readily available. I haven't heard of any paint shortages yet. Um, but you know, we heard of taping compound shortages. I mean, taping compound. There's never been a taping compound shortage in the history of mankind. There was a taping compound shortage. We can't get drawer slides for I cabinets. I, you said that last week. I've told so many people that story. I, we still we have <laughs> cabinets really have. sitting there all done, and you have the drawers sitting inside the thing, but you can't pull them out because there's no slides. You can't wait for them to show up. Is somebody cornering the market on drawer slides right now? I, I, it really bums me out on that one. You're like, somebody has, but again, economics is wonderful because high prices solve issues, low prices solve issues. And so the fact that, that you know, as prices go up in certain areas, people see opportunity, those that can convert into it, you know, they'll start producing, they'll get more stuff there and, and prices will come down. But people won't jump in until they see some sort of sustained and it takes a little while to get into it. So it, it'll be, and, and then shipping messes it all up. So that's a whole different story. So Roberto, in the city, what's really going on? You talked about the COVID discount disappearing, but you didn't go so far as to say the market is out of balance. I know that the number of contracts is way up, right? We went through the, the COVID lull, then they turned on real estate again in the city. The number of contracts shot through the roof and... Uh, the market came back into balance. And then what happened? So it's, where are we now? I, I think it's still in balance. I really do. I think the buyers have, have, there's definitely a lot of things out there that they can buy. Interest rates are amazing. Pricing has not really spiked. We've just kind of gotten back to where we were 2019. 
and there's opportunity. This, and I think over the next four or five years, there's going to be a methodical rise in the marketplace. We still, we're, I think the city's like 70% back to normal. There's a lot of commercials still to come back. There's a lot of retail still to come back. And there are foreigners are just now starting to trickle in. And that's a big wave of people that has yet to come in. So that is a tremendous amount of demand yet to come, which will really start to turn it towards a seller's market, especially because, because of COVID, there was very little construction. So all of the inventory will start to evaporate. And the inventory, imagine think- a year ago, inventory in Manhattan was like 9,600. It's like 6,200 now or something. That's a Why big- do you think prices are going to go up if interest rates are going to go up and, and diminish my buying power? Uh, and the stock market, I mean, I guess you're, you're what's going to fund all this buying power? It's, I think the demand is going to outstrip the fact that interest rates are going to go up. And I don't think that. But where's that demand coming from? It's all coming the people from, are in the city already want to be in the city. You're saying they're going to be taking opportunity to trade up and get bigger and better apartments. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people market? want to. I think a lot of people want to trade up. I think a lot of people still haven't come back. And a lot of people who are thinking about coming who have never been here will start to come back. Some, a broker I spoke to today, he, he was so passionate about the fact that he said, I believe that this vaccine for children is going to make all the difference in the world for so many people. And they're going to feel so much more comfortable. And we're going to see just another wave of people slowly start to come back into the city and upgrade. I just, that's what they see. Are you, are you seeing actually, I mean, given that so many more people are working from home, do you see people sort of like demanding an extra small office space or a place to put stuff? And therefore, you know, the old minimum size apartment is now kind of creeped up for what people really demand or? Yeah, every, everybody wants an office. Everybody wants that extra space. Like this guy who's buying this place is the place that we had an accepted offer on you know, he had to, he, they were going to have to build a closet to compromise the space of the living room in order to make his office. And now the one he's going for that needs to be gut renovated because he's like, I can have my office. It's the driving factor of absorbing this massive headache to deal with you know, all this brain damage of a renovation because it's going to get him that office. And that Are is they, a big driver. So if they look at an apartment like the one over your shoulder now, it occurs to me, okay, I want... I want some of that charm of those arched windows and all that. But are they looking at that saying, okay, I need an office and I don't need this big, open, formal entertaining space anymore. They ha- something has to give, right? You can't have everything. So are they giving up their formal entertaining spaces, their living rooms in favor of an extra office? Are they, conver- are they trying to go to double use out of some of these rooms office and they're they're trying to do double use and they're trying to like in the living room create a desk that can be put away so it looks like a closet so you can murphy desk murphy (laughs) desk so it's not a big room but it can be opened up and be used but your mess gets closed and you have your in your in your living room like my desk is in my living room my wife hates it you should see what it's awful. It looks immaculate behind you. You're saying if the camera was looking the other way. I mean, I've got a stack of bills here. I've got, you know, analysis. I've got, you just don't even want to see. People have actually come up with the apartment cubicle. And so people are now, I mean, it's, as everyone tries to get out of the cubicle, now in their own home, they're being forced to do a cubicle in order to isolate themselves from their family and hide their stuff and do other things. So we're, we're, that some companies have come out with that. But people are compromising the living space. Like these people, what, the, what, the place that they have a contract out on is this beautiful sprawling living room. And when you walk in, it's seductive. You see it, you're like, wow. And they, that's what they fell in love with. And they, we've been back to the apartment three, four, five times. And slowly it's been like, well, there's not very many closets. Where does my Peloton go? Where does my office go? Where does this? And now all of a sudden they're creating a room out of the living room. And now that room is 
that seductive room, it's just not quite the same. That's why we kept, and we have an open, we, they probably would have pursued it, but we have an open permit that has put a lot of time into place and they're just, they're buyers. So they have, we've, since that, we've looked at 15 other things and now they're focused on this other one. And the broker for the one is calling me like, what's going on? Like literally that's where I was called. You're playing hard to get with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's wild. What's, what's going to happen in the spring? I get asked that question all the time. Well, that's okay. I'll just, I'll wait for the spring when there's going to be more inventory. And I tell people, I don't think it's getting better in the spring. There's not only going to be more, if, if there's a bit more inventory, there's going to be a lot more buyers. Exactly. 27 people who missed out on the house on Butler Lane are still out there. Exactly. There's going to be more inventory and there's going to be more plus buyers demand up price up i mean i think one of the, the scariest parts will be once interest rates finally start to go up that'll be a very interesting time but meanwhile i mean it, which actually encourages more people to get it you know you want to actually have you want to have it, it's musical chairs and you want to have a chair when the interest rates start going up because then it doesn't really apply to you if, if you're sitting on the sidelines and all the interest rates start going up, now you've got a whole different equation that's going on. And I think there'll be some pain that happens across the board. But again, and all that leads toward driving things, you know, continuing to drive things for the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, okay. behind the scenes, I mean, the National Association of Home Builders have been putting out for the last decade that we're underproducing the number of housing units that are required for the United States by hundreds of thousands. Year after year after year after five year. Five million short as a nation. Wow. And that adds up. And eventually you're short a lot. And that doesn't even take into account that there's a whole nother class of people that so many more people actually have two or more dwelling units now. That, that doesn't even take into account the fact that, that you know millions of people now have two or three or four different places. Yeah. It's tough. So the the uh, I think the economists said that the nation the national real estate grew nationally uh, at the 15 17 percent last year, but they were expecting a three to six percent um, or, or six to nine percent increase. Now I'm hearing low teens that they they expect price appreciation uh, in the low teens. Have you both also heard that that we're we're starting to see um, it's getting worse. Not, not getting better. I mean, it depends on your perspective, of course, whether you're the buyer or you're the seller, but, but uh, price appreciation of 17% or even 12% per year is not natural uh, and indicates a market you know, significantly out of balance. And I think that uh, Zillow and the National Association of Realtors are, uh, are, are two who've come out and said, yeah, we expect price appreciation in the, in the low teens next year. Um, and that's consistent with what, what I'm hearing from both of you for, for different reasons. But not, not here. I think it's going to be slow and methodical, but it's going to be, you know, in four or five years, we'll look back like that's been a move, but it's going to just be a methodical. Yeah, and I think it's the, the larger statistics in real estate are just so hard to understand because, you know, if, if, if New York City has a 1% a increase, that actually drags down the national average because there's so much in New York City. But meanwhile, also, you end up with some other places like uh, Palm Beach, which ends up having a 100% appreciation. And I'm making that up, but it, you know, you get some really big, and, and those are some really big dollar uh, numbers that are on there. And all of a sudden, you end up you know, kicking in billions of dollars into sort of the average part. But meanwhile, that may have nothing to do with Utica, New York, or with, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, nowhere in Florida, but I mean, there, there's certainly places in Florida that are seeing no appreciation. So, so much of it's local and, and, you know, a place like New Canaan has no new land. Whereas meanwhile, you have other places that have huge new tracks that are going in, which may not cause appreciation, but may actually, you know, cause their whole real estate stock to go way up. Um, so all, I mean, as we all know, real estate's all local. So that's the more important than the national side. And around here, again, I think that you'll see spot areas having huge appreciation. I think more of the areas will kind of be, they'll mellow out a little bit because again, I think you're getting close to an affordability issue. Um, 
which will affect things. I mean, there, there, there has to be some upper limit because people just can't go above that without really damaging their, their lifestyle. Yeah, I agree. So uh, toward that end, since we've been talking about prices and whether they'll go up and down and who's going to pay them, next week uh, on Burroughs and Burbs, we're going to talk about pricing. As realtors, we think we know a thing or two about pricing. I know that Scott Hobbs, the CEO of his company, is probably uh, very acutely involved in the pricing. When you price, uh, oh, I don't know, a $30 million house, you probably don't rely on low-level guys in your organization to get it right. It's probably, you know, a, a, pricing is probably a very big deal uh, with a lot of risk. So it occurred to me that we should ask um, Rob Doctors, uh, who is a professor of pricing at Yale on the show. And we're also gonna have our guest um, who is a, a professional appraiser, right? Jonathan Miller. John Miller from Miller Samuels. And he said, oh, I'm a professor too. Uh, that guy from Yale, he's got nothing on me. I'm a professor at Columbia. So we got the Columbia professor and the Yale professor uh, going to teach us a little bit about the science behind pricing, uh, because it's not all just so intuitive. Um, I'm very exciting, excited about the pricing show and what I don't know about pricing. When they said, what, what kinds of things are we going to talk about? I said, I want to understand why a realtor like David Ogilvie puts a price on the Helmsley estate of $100 million dollars knowing that you know he's going to then reduce it to 50 million dollars and sell it for 30 million dollars you know what goes into the psychology behind some of these pricing strategies uh tell me about the endowment effect why do my customers all think that their house is worth more than i think it's worth um so let's talk about some of these biases and some of the science behind pricing in two weeks I'm also equally excited because we have the guy redeveloping downtown Darien and the guy who just finished redeveloping downtown Westport. And we also have the head of the Chamber of Commerce here in New Canaan talking about what kind of stores, what kind of mixed use and, uh, we have here in New Canaan. And so we're going to get a good uh, broad look at those three towns, New Canaan, Westport, Darian, what kind of businesses do they attract? What kind of people do those businesses attract to the downtown? Um, and what's the future, generally speaking, for retail? Because if you're developing mixed use with a retail component and an office component and a housing component, I'll bet you have an opinion about where all this is going for the next 10 years in a post-COVID environment. Remember, those projects were started before a COVID was a thing. Now that COVID is a thing, I'm dying to find out whether they would still make those bets. Would they still redevelop the downtown? Uh, maybe we should go find a developer in Manhattan who can talk to us about, like Steve Kligerman, who can talk to us about uh, where the bets are being made on office space in Manhattan and office space in Brooklyn. Are people still looking for office space? Are they still looking for retail or is that not coming back? Um, so those are some of the things I'm interested in finding out over the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm very excited about that. Roberto? I'm excited. <laughs> I really am. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Oh, this is great. I always enjoy talking with you guys and, and learning from you. So appreciate it. And All right. Next week will be actually kind of cool too. I, I'm excited. I know, nothing about, I know nothing about at least the, in two weeks, I know nothing. So I got to study up. But uh, next week, I've got some opinions. Good, good. All right. Professor's got nothing on us. <laughs> Realtors all think they know something about pricing, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get humbled. Because I believe it's, I, I don't believe that it's all in the numbers. I think it's in, it, there's emotion involved. And we've talked about that, but we've had this debate before. But should there be? It's, well, if you're dealing with it, if you're dealing with a investor, yes. If you're dealing with a home, it's there's a big component of emotion in there. That's all. Well, and maybe that's maybe we'll learn that that's what allows somebody like Ogilvy to take a trophy property and put a big number on it 
to communicate just how unique and special that property is. It's a, it's a pricing strategy to communicate uniqueness. Um, you know, I love it. Anyway, I'm excited about both of these shows. I'll see you guys next week, four o'clock next Thursday. Hey, gentlemen. Hoorah. Enjoy, guys. <laughs>